the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Well, we're going full tilt in this revived series. Oh, that first means that. We're up to session 44. This series began airing in 2022 from January through September, comprising 31 programs. But in May of this year, 2023, by popular demand, we revived and resumed this series. Once again, we'll set our sights on being detectives of the divine. The original Original 31 archived sessions, along with these newer editions, can easily be accessed at faithtalk1360.com. Just search for local program podcasts. Well, friends, I'm hoping that by now our detective's cap, our spiritual magnifying glass, and our biblical sandals are standard equipment in our spiritual wardrobe. So let's make sure they're out and ready for today's investigative process, because they're crucial to protect ourselves from cavalierly and authoritatively barking out what we think a Bible verse or a portion of Scripture means. Friends, I'm certain at times we don't realize we're imposing a personal or modern perspective on the Scriptures we're reading or studying. Sometimes I sincerely wonder why many of us so easily misuse the scriptures. Well, it recently came to my attention that some Bible scholars were polled regarding this very question. Their threefold answer was declining biblical literacy, questionable Bible translations, and preachers who don't do their homework. Now, I do believe sincere Christians generally want to know what Bible verses mean, but so often miss their meanings because they tend to focus on what they expect or want to find in these verses. I mean, we've got to admit it, friends, that we crave our spiritual quick fix, don't we? You know, consuming that one biblical morsel for the day, just so we can get on with life. But friends, shouldn't we respect the Holy Spirit, the author and inspirer of our scriptures? Isn't God's word worth investing our time? Shouldn't our goal be to ensure we're doing the scriptures justice? 
Investing a little extra time to observe the contexts of verses we read will reap great rewards and at the same time protect us from so easily and readily abusing Scripture. Additionally, let me be frank, shouldn't it bother us that up till now we've singled out 43 Bible verses that are misunderstood, mischaracterized, misinterpreted, and as a result misapplied? So I'm appealing to you, friends, let's re-embrace a desire desire to more faithfully and carefully scrutinize those Bible verses we've thought meant one thing because we're discovering they actually mean something different. And let me repeat, friends, I take no pleasure in shining a spiritual searchlight on or get any glee from critically re-examining texts that are atrociously interpreted by some of us pastors, teachers, and preachers. And you know why? Because the Bible has a story to tell us, doesn't it? It's crying out, screaming out to tell us its story. But what do we pastors, teachers, and preachers, and even average Christians do? We force or manipulate the Bible to tell our story. So I say, shame on us. Well, for today's session, our scripture under scrutiny is Ephesians 6.11. But keep in mind, verse 11 is inseparably linked to verses 10 through 20, its immediate or primary context. And I'll admit, Ephesians 6.11 at first glance seems like a benign text, even self-explanatory. We may wonder why it's under scrutiny in today's session. I've said a few times, in this series that occasionally our scripture under scrutiny fits better in the category of discovering the text means something deeper and not just something different. Yet today we may find that for some of us listeners, it's something different, and for others, it's something deeper. This is the beauty of our Bible, friends, and why Proverbs chapter 2 tells us that if we cry aloud for understanding and search God's word as if it were hidden treasure, we'll find the knowledge of God and his wisdom. The Proverbs remind us that, like treasure, God's word is something precious. We should not treat it as if it were common, but desire it as our guide for life. Yet how often do we, friends, put it in a safe deposit box and take it out to look at on rare occasions? Shame on us! So today, Ephesians 6.11 is going to be our jumping-off point to Scripture Under Surveillance, launching us on an investigative journey that only our detectives can our spiritual magnifying glass, and our biblical sandals can take us on. So friends, today's session is, Are We Ignorant of Satan's Schemes? Listen intently as I read from a less familiar translation called The Voice, a dynamic-driven translation. I've chosen it intentionally for its particularly vivid word choices that paint a more evocative picture for us, some 21 centuries after this text was originally composed. Finally, brothers and sisters, draw your strength and might from God. And here's our springboard text, verse 11. Put on the full armor of God to protect yourselves from the devil and his evil schemes. We're not waging war against enemies of flesh and blood alone. No, this fight is against tyrants, against authorities, against supernatural powers and demon princes that slither in the darkness of this world 
and against wicked spiritual armies that lurk about in heavenly places. And this is why you need to be head to toe in the full armor of God, so you can resist during these evil days and be fully prepared to hold your ground. Yes, stand, truth banded around your waist, righteousness as your chest plate, and feet protected in preparation to proclaim the good news of peace. Don't forget to raise the shield of faith above all else, so you'll be able to extinguish flaming arrows or spears hurled at you from the wicked one. Take also the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray always. Pray in the Spirit. Pray about everything in every way you know how. And keeping all this in mind, pray on behalf of God's people. Keep on praying feverishly and be on the lookout until evil has been stayed. And please, pray for me. Pray that the truth will be with me before I even open my mouth. Ask the Spirit to guide me while I boldly defend the mystery that is the good news, for which I am an ambassador in chains. So pray that I can bravely pronounce the truth as I should do. Wow! Powerful portion of scripture, huh, friends? And we'll get to unpacking the word and concept of schemes in 611 shortly. Because I've noticed, friends, that in the Christian community, Ephesians 6 seems to have become the poster child text for teaching about spiritual warfare. And this portion of chapter 6 is often orphaned from the rest of the letter of Ephesians, as if it stands on its own. Which is not really true, and why I feel compelled to adopt it back into the fold of the letter's concept and theme. Because unfortunately, Ephesians chapter 1 has become a ping-pong ball for theological debates, which have their place, but at the same time squeeze out another running truth that's tethered to the concept and theme elaborated on in chapter 6. In chapter 1, Paul makes it clear that the scope of his letter is otherworldly. In other words, he's writing about the activities of the unseen world, both the heavenly and the demonic world. In his opening greeting in verse 3, Paul blesses both God the Father and God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and declares that the source of God's blessings to us originates in the heavenlies. And in his prayer for the Ephesian believers that begins in verse 15, he goes on to state in verses 20 and 21 that Jesus' resurrection has now seated him back at the Father's right hand in the heavenlies, and that Jesus now continues his rule far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Now, friends, I'll pause here a moment so we don't miss a crucial point Paul is making right here in verse 21. Paul uses a slew of what I call buzzwords in his letters, sometimes an abbreviated list, other times a fuller list. Buzzwords like rule, authority, power, dominion. He repeats this list in Colossians 1.16 when he declares all that Jesus created by saying, By him, Jesus, all things were created in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether, here it comes, thrones, dominions, or rulers, or authorities, all things have been created through him, Jesus, and for him. In Ephesians 3.10, Paul adds, So the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. 
In Romans 8.38, Paul speaks of angels and principalities, principalities being an alternate English word for rulers. The Apostle Peter even chimes in with his partial list in 1 Peter 3.22, Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into the heavens, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Friends, I propose that these lists often include the angelic beings or forces on both sides, the good or elect angels and the bad or evil angels that became the demons in the angelic rebellion against God, spearheaded by Lucifer, who became Satan in the angelic fall. Sometimes it's hard to distinguish between the powerful angelic beings in the unseen world that are good angels and the evil fallen angels, a.k.a. the demons, in these New Testament lists. But we can deduce that these lists clearly indicate a structured hierarchy, and since the lists aren't chronologically identical, we can't be certain as to each of their power or authority levels or ranks. But one thing is absolutely certain. Jesus is the head and authority over all of them, per Colossians 2.10. Occasionally, one or more of these terms actually refers to earthly political rulers or the spiritual powers behind them, as 1 Corinthians 2, 6-8 seems to indicate. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are passing away. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Friends, Ephesians, Colossians, and Second Timothy are sufficient enough and require us Christians to have the mindset of a soldier in a military conflict. But do we picture ourselves in our walk in Christ this way? Do we understand our Christian life as a military engagement? For the most part, I think not. Paul doesn't view the Christian life as a life of leisure, friends, but rather a life of warring against spiritual forces of evil and actively taking a stand against the devil's schemes. So now's a good time to unpack this biblical word, schemes, used in Ephesians 6.11. Thankfully, our standard English dictionaries do supply a basic meaning of scheme and that it's used both positively and negatively. Positively, scheme can refer to a systematic plan for putting a particular idea into effect or a plan or program of action. Negatively, scheme refers to a plan or program that's crafty, secretive, or done in a devious way, or with the intent to do something wrong or illegal. Later in the word's history, the unfavorable notion of a plot was added. The New Testament Greek word Paul uses is methodia, a rich and expressive word. You can probably guess what English word came from this Greek word, right? Method and methodology. In the New Testament environment, it is connected more to evil doing and the negative aspect of the term. It carries with it the ideas of craftiness, deceit, searching after something, well-organized evil, and well-crafted trickery. It even includes investigating methodically to adopt a settled plan. Additionally, it carries with it the ideas of cunning and wiles and strategically manipulating or persuading someone to do what one wants. 
Whoa, now there's a pretty powerful word and concept, right, friends? Are we starting to feel convicted yet? Have we crafted a methodia for our own lives? I wonder. Let me create a brief summation of this incredible word for all our benefit, and it's presented in the New Testament. Schemes include these shades of meaning, well-crafted trickery, deceit, lying in wait, having a settled plan, and being methodical. So Ephesians six ten through 20, assume that we'll have a military mindset and that we'll be actively training for the battle ahead. Verse 11 implies that we'll be putting on the full armor of God in order to prepare ourselves daily for battle of some kind. Now, where we Christians err is thinking that, since our struggle is not against flesh and blood, per Ephesians 6.12, we don't have to wrestle with earthly, political, or social entities. This is a deceptive lie, though. Spiritual warfare directly influences the political, moral, and social environments in every culture. Just check out Paul's letter to Timothy and his call to pray for all in authority, 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, and listen to the sober reality characterizing the first century in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. Sound familiar? But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, or arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. Well, let's pause here, friends. If you tuned in late, you're listening to A Word from the Word with me, your host, Pastor Tom. I value you as listeners to A Word from the Word, which is listener-funded. Your financial partnership keeps this program on the air, which also disciples Christians without a church home, plus those of you who may have been hurt or wounded by the institutional church. Please join forces with me and A Word from the Word by emailing me for support details at A Word from the Word word at minister.com. We'll repeat this info at the end of the program. Now, regarding 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, here's a free tidbit, friends, and this is a perfect example of how a little investment in time adds a wealth of knowledge and more precise knowledge of a text. In reading these five verses, one of the signs of the end times in Paul's laundry list includes, without love. We might naturally assume love in general will decline or be virtually non-existent. But it so happens that this word love here is the Greek word astorgos, and it refers to family love. You know, the love between parents and children, vice versa, and love between family members. So in effect, this end times prophecy refers to family love breaking down, not love in general. Isn't this exactly what we're seeing, friends? And isn't this little side lesson cool? Just think you could be discovering things like this on your own. Well, friends, notice that wherever and whenever God in the world but heads, there's going to be spiritual warfare. Thankfully, the Word of God provides us adequate help and the kind of armor we need to battle properly. And the scripture portion we're zeroing in on, Ephesians six ten through 20 is actually 
actually the longest single portion outlining spiritual warfare in our Bible. Now, to the consensus of scholarly opinion that the Apostle Paul wrote Ephesians while he was in prison in Rome. He mentions being a prisoner three times, 3-1, 4-1, and 6-20, the text in our portion under surveillance in today's session. In Acts 28-16, Luke records Paul's imprisonment in Rome. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. It was while he was here in prison that Paul wrote Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. So, friends, today's let's envision Paul being chained to a Roman soldier, and the Holy Spirit is now directing him to observe the soldier's uniform, or as I say, the soldier's wardrobe, from head to toe, from top to bottom. Even though these individual components of the soldier's armor are not listed in this order, in Ephesians six ten through 20. I chose this order so we can visualize the Roman soldier easier and imagine we're sizing him up as well. And friends, Paul's itemized list of spiritual parallels to the parts of the armor of this Roman soldier didn't just appear out of thin air by the creative genius of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brought to Paul's mind parallels from his own Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament. So we'll be unveiling these scriptures from our Old Testament for each of these pieces of armor. We'll be amazed at what and who they actually point to. Well, friends, the first part of the soldier's armor is the helmet of salvation. Let's start with its Old Testament parallel, Isaiah fifty-nine fourteen through 17. So justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. And whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene, so his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate, and the helmet of salvation on his head. Wow! But that's not really going on in our world today, right? Well, Ephesians 6.17 tells us the believers, us by extension, to take the helmet of salvation. I don't know how many of you listening remember the American Express Traveler Checks commercials from way back when, but they ran a campaign for the longest time with their closing slogan, Don't Leave Home Without It, meaning a traveler's check. I kind of think the same way about the helmet of salvation. I never want to leave home without it. Well, let's tag on a cultural historical tidbit here. The standard Roman helmet was fashioned from bronze or iron. Two hinged cheek pieces protected each side of the soldier's face. The helmet also protected the soldier's skull and neck area from his enemy's weapons as well as falling debris. Well, friends, the spiritual parallel here becomes these valuable truths. First, the helmet of salvation points to God as the ultimate victor over evil forces. And once again, we've got to pause here a moment, because for the Jews of times past, salvation became a full-orbed concept. The Hebrew backdrop of this word salvation in Exodus 14.13 originated as a military term and was used in a military context. 
Also check out Moses and Miriam's Song of Deliverance in Exodus 15, sung after the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. We lose this backdrop and this word's rich understanding as 21st century Christians because we see salvation as a distinctively and exclusively spiritual encounter or experience. And because of this, we also miss the connection on Palm Sunday when the Jews' crowns shouted, Hosanna, as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. The original Hebrew and Aramaic term is actually Hoshia Na, two words that mean save now. So the Jews on Palm Sunday were petitioning Jesus to save them then and there from the grip of Roman tyranny. You see, they were salivating for national salvation. They fully understood the meaning of their military-influenced term, salvation. It carried with it the meanings of deliverance, rescue, victory over one's military enemies, liberation. The Isaiah 59 passage we read also has messianic tie-ins to Isaiah 53 and Psalm 118. The arm of the Lord in Isaiah 59 and 53 are veiled references to the Messiah as God's agent in salvation. Second, friends, putting on the armor of God is ultimately putting on Jesus. Putting on our helmet of salvation also means having assurance that Jesus saves us, not because of our good deeds, but because of his mercy. And third, the helmet reminds us of the fact that we're in a battle for souls, and this will cause us to be persecuted from natural and spiritual enemies. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 10, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Jesus said it best in Matthew five eleven and 12, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, in our next session, we'll pick up where we left off and finish out the pieces of armor and their spiritual significance. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're at the end of our program. I hope it's been both a blessing and a challenge. And as promised, we'll close our program with an email where you may inquire about helping fund a word from the word, which is 100% listener funded. I love coming alongside you who don't have a church home or you who've been hurt or wounded by the institutional church. Podcasts are posted at faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. They're also at Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And thanks to my friends and partners at ChristianBody.net, a word from the word is heard in over 70 countries. Friends, if these teachings are helping you grow and nudging you to study God's word more carefully, please invest in the mission of a word from the word so we can become fully funded. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, If you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at awordfromtheword at minister.com. That's awordfromtheword at minister.com.
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.